Uh, if you need a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand. One of the ushers will pass one to you. Man, this series in Revelation has been great. This is our final week. I don't know, maybe some of you are here because you're enjoying this series in Revelation. That really drew you in. I got to let you know, the rest of the Bible is great too. We're going to keep going through this. All right, so if you loved Revelation, you're going to love the rest. Uh, please keep joining with us. But here we are, finishing out this study, Revelation 22. Last week, we got into that glimpse of the, of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth as a place of total security, absolute beauty, a place of complete oneness with God. And I, and I think we saw that message and received the message as it was intended to be received by Christians all throughout the last several thousand years. Is first of all, an exhortation to live for that reward. Like, oh, that, that victory is what I live for. But also as an encouragement for the weak and the tired, that you would look to the renewal of all things visualized in Revelation 21. Now, we're going to start today in Revelation 22 with a few final glimpses of that new creation. And then we're going to hear the summary exhortations, these encouragements. That's what exhortation is. It's kind of a spiritual word. Uh, you know, you don't use it a lot. But an exhortation is an encouragement that moves you to act. Like, it's an encouragement that leads to an action. So we're going to read a few last glimpses of what this new creation is going to look like, and then the rest of it is just summary exhortations, summary encouragements given the whole message of the book of Revelation for us to act, to live in line with what we've heard. It's sort of like, uh, you know, calling out for my cat. That's kind of the vibe that, that's here in the last chapter. Um, let me explain this a little bit. Um, I know an explanation is necessary. When, when I just, like, glance in the direction of my dog, the dog is up in my grill. I, I, I don't even have to say it. I just have to look in the dog's general direction, and the dog is ready, right? And those of you who have been at my house, you understand that, that that is what my dog does. a little annoying. But with my cat, you know, I got a cat recently for, for Christmas. Oh, my gosh. You got to call out to this thing, uh, you know, two, three, four times. You're clapping your hands. You're making noise. You're going, Lazarus, Lazarus, over here, over here. And... Some of you are wondering, you're like, I thought your cat's name was Dolly Purton. That's the last you heard on Christmas Eve. Dolly Purton almost died. We went to a miracle cat vet that's also a Christian, no lie here, raised the cat to life and found out it's a guy. So that's the name change and the name change to Lazarus who was raised from the dead. Now you're up to speed. So now you know why I call my cat Lazarus, but... But you can call out, you call out five, six, seven, ten times. You're making noise. You're saying, don't go in the street. Don't. And then the cat kind of glances your direction, right? And that, that's kind of the feel in Revelation 22. God knows, spiritually speaking, in the metaphor, we're not really like dogs. We're not always that attentive and ready to obey. We need one call, two calls, three calls, four, like, wake up. We, we more have the spiritual constitution of a cat from time to time, all right? Let, let's get into it. Let's see these few glimpses, these last few glimpses of the new creation, and then these several encouragements and exhortations. Verse 1 of Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. 
The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Our reading started today with the culminating image of the new creation, the throne of God and of the Lamb. And emerging from the throne is this river of the waters of life, which is taken from that Ezekiel prophecy of the end times temple in Ezekiel 47. Envisioned in this river of life is prosperity, it's wholeness, it's peace, it's nourishment, it's flourishing, it's thriving. And that's why it runs through the main street of the heavenly city. You know, if you're to visit Las Vegas and you go down the strip, you go down the main street, you see what the city's all about right away, right? And the same is true of the heavenly city. The river of life fl flows down the middle of the city so that you can see what the city is all about. It's about prosperity. It's about life and flourishing. That says the tree of life is also there. The tree of life made its first appearance in the Garden of Eden. If you were to eat the fruit of the tree of life, you'd live forever. Now the tree of life is present in the heavenly city, the place of eternal life. It's there seen on both banks of the river. Does that mean the tree itself, you know, kind of extends over the water, over the river? Or does that mean there's a grove of trees of life on either side of the river? 
You know, I, I wouldn't fuss too much about the images and the metaphors. Uh, you know, seeing as it's yielding this fruit every month, but how are we keeping track of the months because there's no more sun? I know your minds are blown right now, right? You're like, oh, no sun, no months? You know, the, the point is, what, what John is seeing is the culmination of the fulfillment of all the prophecies of old. This is a heightened experience of Eden in a heavenly Jerusalem coming together in a ubiquitous temple-like setting. And when I say that word, I mean like everywhere you go in the heavenly city that is this heightened version of Eden, you're in this like house of worship is what it feels like. Because God himself, his manifest presence, dwells and lives in the city. And we're said to be there too in this place of security, fulfillment, and beauty. Divine architecture intersecting with paradisal Eden. As Adam walked with God, so it says, we will see God's face, his name written on our foreheads, just like the high priest would have God's name written on his forehead. You know, he was the one person who had access to the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelled, his presence. Now, all of us are going to have free access to God's presence. But unlike the garden that was only for a period of time, this is going to go on forever and ever. Now, having beheld the glory of this promised city for God's people, this literal light of God, I mean, he's the lamp. The lamb is the lamp of the city. Twice, you know, both last week and this week, there's no night. You get the point? This is the light of God at the end of the tunnel. This tunnel of the world that is a tunnel of tribulations at times and sufferings. Having beheld that, having seen that final image, we finally get to the cat claps, as I called them at the outset. Right? These promptings, these encouragements, these exhortations to wake up the spiritually lazy into action and to motivate the unmotivated. It reminds me, for my wife's birthday, we made a dream come true. We went to a Lakers game. Her dream came true. And uh, we were there and, um, you know, we, were, we, were, we had a great view of the whole arena from the very back. Uh, but we made the dream come true. It was a great view. We could see everything, including everyone who's there in attendance. And... Uh, and what happens when, uh, you know, the momentum of the game changes in the favor of your team? What happens to the crowd? Because you can be down by a few points, and you kind of feel the momentum shifting away. And then, you know, somebody makes a shot, there's a stop, you know, something goes on, and the momentum shifts. And even if you're down by a lot of points, but the momentum shifts, the crowd cheers. They stand up, they get on their feet, they start yelling. Because they can see the window of victory has opened. Like there's, a, there's an opportunity, there's a possibility, and we all want to motivate the players on the court, right? We'll even do this from the safety of our homes, even though it has no effect on the team. Uh, you know, you stand up like you're actually motivating, and you're not motivating anybody. We're a little bit too connected to the thing going on. But, but in the same way, it's like, yeah, go, go for it. Go for the goal, you know. Summon all your resources, team. That's what we're crying out from the stands. Like get through that victory, and that's the feeling here in Revelation 22. There's this window of victory into this heavenly city now. It's like, church, God's people, summon your resources. Realize this reward. Because the reward is real. So says an angel that speaks to John. Pursue that reward with urgency because verse 6 says the angel was sent to detail things that must soon take place. Essentially, this reward, this vision is real. 
And it is now. The battle for it is now. You know, as I said at the outset of this series, there's so many people who read the book of Revelation as mostly irrelevant for their life. They say, oh, the book of Revelation details a series of events that are going to happen to a separate group of people that you'll have no involvement with whatsoever. And, and you know, I've I, I made the case that that's not the way that we want to read the book of Revelation. It has relevance. Sure, it speaks to things past. You know, the book of Revelation details the enthronement of Jesus. That's past. It details the victory over Satan and him being thrown down from heaven through the victory of the cross. That's a past event. It details events future, yes. You know, the, the battle of Armageddon, the final judgment. But primarily, the book of Revelation is concerned with the here and now, the present tribulations and challenges that the church is facing, both evidenced in the various letters and in the various visions. Daniel of the Old Testament had these prophecies and visions of events that would take place in the distant future. The book of Revelation starts out from the very beginning and says, look, the things that Daniel saw future are the things that are being fulfilled in the day in which we are living. The battle for our spiritual victory is taking place today. We require a sense of urgency. It's like, what have I told you? A life-threatening earthquake strikes California every thousand years, and the last one hit a hundred years ago. If you heard that, you say, oh, great. Uh, you know, <laughs> every thousand years, it's been a hundred, you know, carry the one. That's 900 more years. That's longer than my lifetime. I can just kind of kick up my feet and relax. That's a problem for some other group of people that I'll never know. I can be lazy. But what have I told you? A life-threatening earthquake hits California every hundred years, and it's been about a hundred years since the last one, which I think is actually true. That kind of wakes you up a little bit, right? You say, wait a minute, I need a higher level of awareness. I need to be smack dab right in the center of a posture of readiness. And that's what the book of Revelation is telling us. You're in the midst of it. Get ready. So Jesus adds to it in verse 7. He underscores it. He says, look, I'm coming soon. Not later on, but soon. So blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. Not blessed is the one who knows the words as events to play out. The book isn't about knowing facts, about knowing stuff that will happen to another group of people that you're not. The point of the book, the point of Jesus' teachings all the time is to get us to act. Blessed is the one not who knows, you know, some future event, knows this is happening now. I am coming soon. My reward is at stake and you're either going to inherit it or you're going to lose out on it. Now, as an aside, you might be wondering, how can we conceive of Jesus as coming soon after 2,000 years of waiting? If you're still sitting at the restaurant table after 2,000 years, you might have been stood up for your date, right? I mean, at some point, two hours in, man, you've waited too long. Your date is not coming, I'm sorry to say. So 2,000 years later, it's like, is our date coming? Well, for one, Jesus' second coming is the next age-defining event. You know, we are living between the ascension of Christ and his return. You know, that's it. So as far as next age-defining events, our ticket is up, all right? That, th this is the one to come. Well, even if it takes a 1,000 years, what is a 1,000 years to God? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, a 1,000 years is like a day to God. Just think the change that happens in understanding time as we move from childhood to adulthood. 
You know, the way that we view time changes. You know, an hour when you're a kid, oh, we've got to wait an hour. We've got another hour in the car. No, an hour. An hour. When you're a kid, an hour drags on forever. That's an eternity is an hour, right? An hour is 10 minutes to me. It's, it's like, wait, wait a minute. What time? I, I, you just told me to do that 10 minutes ago. It's an hour later, huh? You're out of your mind. You check the clock. What? I'm out of my mind. You know, it's like, it's like a month. A month? Oh, you go on summer break? I'm going to be on summer break forever. All my life is before me. A month goes by in a week. For me, you know, we're in April. You know, the three months have passed by. I haven't even revisited my New Year's resolution. I haven't even thought about it. I just made it yesterday. Right? That's how it feels to me. Like, my understanding of time has changed from childhood to adulthood. Imagine if you are the ageless God. A thousand years to him is like a day. His timeline is not our timeline when it comes to quickness. But even more than that, the word that Jesus uses that's translated soon in our Bibles could be just suddenly or quickly. His return is going to be unexpected, like a thief in the night. He's going to arrive without warning, is what he's saying. So the point is, so far, heed the message by honoring God, by honoring him with a sense of urgency. Take it seriously today and make sure it's God that you're honoring. Yeah, that was one of John's mistakes. It's something that he himself messed up many times. He had urgency. He had an excitability, right, as he's viewing all these things, but he messed up the object of his worship. Having heard and seen all these things, absolutely jarring even to read. I mean, we've been going through these 13 weeks, and as you go through it, you get to the other side of Sunday morning in our gathering of four chapters of reading, and you're like, I need a nap. I need a nap. You know, it's jarring for us to read. It's taxing for us to go through all this over 13 weeks. Imagine being John. He didn't just read it. He saw it experienced it taken up in the spirit, and then he jotted it down. At the end of it, in verse 8, he falls at the angel's feet for a second time in worship. I mean, just for everything that he's taken in, he's overwhelmed. But for a second time, the angel must remind and redirect John to worship God alone. The inclusion of this error twice, to want to worship the messenger of the prophecy shows how even somebody of John's spiritual stature, how they can be susceptible to the temptation to give reverence to someone or something other than God. That's how prevalent the temptation is. It's somebody of John, the apostle, his spiritual stature, who selected to receive this prophecy. He falls at the feet of an angel and worships twice. If he's that weak, what of us? To be susceptible to give our reverence to someone or something other than God. What of the early church? Their weakness to fall prey to give worship to an object other than to God. And that is the danger. The church might be willing to worship an angel of light. I mean, this is an angel of light. You say, there's nothing wrong. Okay, at least it was from God. But if the church is liable to worship an angel of light, we might actually find ourselves worshiping the dragon, Satan, because he himself disguises himself as an angel of light. That's how Satan's going to appear. If John's going to fall at the feet of this angel, he might fall at the feet of Satan, unbeknownst to him. If the church is going to fall to their knees at persuasive teaching and powerful signs, we might realize one day we've been following the false prophet because that's how the false prophet is going to work in the world, with powerful signs, with persuasive teaching. 
If the church can be allured by power and positions of authority, well, guess what? We might bow down before the beast because it's the world that marvels at the beast because of his position of power and authority. How easy is it for us to be fooled to marvel at the echoes of God, whether they come from the faithful to encourage us? It's not even necessarily it's the evil people that are, you know, the echoes of God. <laughs> you know, it, it could be the faithful, like this angel, Right? But how foolish we are to fall prey to that, to worship those echoes of God's greatness. If we'll do it there, then we'll certainly fall prey to it when the wicked use it to deceive us. We are to be meticulous. I mean, this is the message of Revelation. We are to be meticulous about ensuring that the object of our worship is always God alone. It's like when you're watching a kid who can't swim near the edge of a pool or near the ocean. You know, you're like, whoa, there's no way. I'm not even going to let you get near the edge because I know what's at stake right now. So we spiritually say, man, I'm not even going to get to the edge of, you, of attributing worth and worship to someone or something besides God himself. So stepping back, the initial dialogue here between John, the angel, and Jesus, it has the effect of putting all of us, the church, at ready attention. In a stand poised, church, with urgency, in a posture of spiritual readiness, absolute loyalty only to God because the stakes are so high, both the reward and the judgment. And such is conveyed in the next several verses, starting with this statement of prophetic indifference in verse 11. Let's read it again. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right, and let the holy person continue to be holy. What in the world is this saying? Is the Bible telling vile people to stay vile? Is it telling people who do wrong to stay doing the wrong thing? Well, it's kind of like what's being conveyed here is like having unsealed this message, having let it out to the world, it's like let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And let the dull who don't want to receive the message just stay dull. Let it be as it will be. God did his part. The messenger, the angel, and John himself, they did their part in conveying the message. The ball is in your court. The ball is in my court. You know, the, your life and what you do with this message is not on anyone else. It's not on a messenger. It's not on God. It is on you. If you want to hear or not, if you want heaven or hell, if you can see the difference between holiness and unholiness, you choose. The book serves, Revelation serves to further harden an already hardened heart, or it serves to make ready a heart that's ready for obedience. It just accelerates it. It's kind of like when I, I used to work with epoxy paints and epoxy adhesives and glues. They're just, they're stronger. And the reason is an epoxy is a, is a two-part process. You get two chemicals together and there's a chemical reaction that takes place when you mix them. And that makes the finished product, whether it's paint or it's glue, it just makes it stronger than any other single part process. So you can mix those two together and there's the chemical reaction. You can add a third element too. You can add an accelerator. The accelerator doesn't change anything in the chemical process that's taking place between the first two items. It just makes it go faster, depending on how much you put in. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's an accelerator. If you had a hardened heart against God and you went through the whole book of Revelation, you're just all the more shut down. If you had a ready heart, a heart that wants to pursue Christ in obedience, it made you hungry all the more. For that latter group, 
They have reward when Jesus arrives because they wash their robes through faith and they're going to eat from the tree of life and access the city. They had their eyes fixed on Jesus. They saw the message as pertaining to today. They heeded his words now. They're more ready having heard the message. But outside the city and outside the promises are those who are hardened, the dogs. I'm sorry, pet lovers. Dog, you know, it was, it was a pejorative term in the ancient world. That's why I gave a dog a compliment at the beginning because I knew I'm working in Orange County. Okay, I just want to balance everything out here. I'm pro-dog. You know, this is going to be testy, right? But I'm just, I'm letting you know in the ancient world, to be called a dog was a negative term because they were scavengers. It's a metaphor for those who are self-interested, who just devour the scraps and filth. And some of you are like, yeah, that's what I think dogs are, but I can't tell anyone in Orange County. I get it. You know, I can tell some stories of what my dog has done. You know, the filthy things my dog has done, and I'm just going to spare you all that. But that's what this metaphor is calling on. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's a dog-eat-dog world? You know, that's a, that's a phrase that some people use to describe the nature of society. I always thought they were saying it's a doggy-dog world. And I never understood the meaning of it until someone finally enunciated dog-eat-dog world. And you realize... Yeah, there's a lot of corners of society that we have created where really it's eat or be eaten. You know, devour others or be devoured. And there's so many different breeds of dog in our world. There are those who are spiritually and chemically seducing others into apathy and complicity with the world. You know, referenced here as magic spells. There are those who are driven by their physical sexual desires just living solely to devour a temporary feeling. Those who kill, whether spiritually or literally, to step on and over the lives of others to get ahead. Those who are going to serve whatever God or idol in this world they think they can get more for themselves from. You know, instead of giving of themselves like the one true God teaches us to do through the gospel. And there are those who lie and who practice lies, who claim a confession of Jesus, but they just use it as a disguise to live exactly like the rest of the world. These are different breeds of sinners that lie outside the promised heavenly city. But don't think the sinners are outside because they didn't get the invite to come through the gates. Jesus, the victorious king in the line of David, the bright morning star that's ushering in this new creation, is always bearing invitation while today is still today. First, our invitation is to him in verse 17. Come, Lord Jesus, return. Achieve what you've set out to achieve. Achieve this victory. And we all join in. And he responds, come to me. Let the one who is thirsty drink of the free gift of the water of life. Give up the lies. Give up the obsession with sex. Give up the pills and drugs. Give up the murder and anger. Give up your idols. Give up living like the world and come get the water of life that satisfies. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. This is an invitation explicitly taken from Isaiah 55. I'm going to read it. Verse 1. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money. You have no resources. You're not even going to need it. Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Why spend your, your real money 
and your work on things in this world that will not fulfill you. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. This invitation, you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. As I said, this final chapter, chapter has proved to be that pleading, that prompting, that encouragement, that exhortation, those hand claps, those calls to active concern. It's the final summation. It's the final summary of what we're to do with the book. So it's fitting that it also ends with blessings and curses. I mean, that's like the book of law, the book of Deuteronomy. There, God laid out before the Israelites in the Old Testament. He said, you know, this is how you can live according to this relationship with me. And if you live according to it, you're going to be blessed. And if you break the laws and you break the commands, you're going to be cursed. And that's at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. And here, at the end of the book of Revelation, are these blessings and these curses you know, specifically, the warning is for those who add or take away from the message of the book of Revelation. And what has been the message of the book? The message is to persevere, to endure for the name and the way of Christ. We are not to betray our confession by compromising with the world. No matter what trouble comes, because God is over all the trouble. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end, and he's everything in between, too. Everything that's going on. He's the God who is and was and is to come. But how often has this book been used to communicate not that message, but the obscure, the flawed, the conspiratorial? To pervert the message is to change the main things of the book. It's to make it less than about the main things. And you're liable to face the same destruction as the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Because when you take away the main message of the book of Revelation, well, then you become a false prophet. This is not a book to be mishandled. I consider it to be like a loaded spiritual firearm. You know, and I've done my best to handle this responsibility with great care, trying to make clear what God would have us not just know, but have us do in response to what's been spoken. And you yourself are now endowed with that same great responsibility. For if you take away from the message of this prophecy by not listening to it or ignoring it, or if you add to it by inserting your own agenda, well, then the curses of the book, the plagues are added unto you, and the blessings, they become someone else's to enjoy. Chapter 22, verse 7, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy. Just as we began in chapter 1, verse 3, so many weeks ago, blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy and takes them to heart. As we take to heart Revelation 22 and the book as a whole, here's some thoughts I want to leave us with. Number one, live for Christ with a sense of urgency. Live for Christ with a sense of urgency, not anxiety. Christ is coming. His reward is with him. Live with urgency. That is trusting intentionality. That's how I'd phrase it. Trusting intentionality. Not anxiety or faithless reactivity. There's a big difference. This book has encouraged in many Christian circles a lot of anxiety. Faithless reactivity. Not trusting intentionality. 
I'm going to take the time that I have, trust in God with it, and I'm going to do something with it. You know, there's a, there's a parable that Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 12 about the urgency of our obedience. He says, you know, master has an estate and he leaves it in the hands of his servants. And he's gone a long time. And the servants talk to each other and they say, man, he's gone a long time. We can do whatever we want. And they end up lazy. And they end up unfruitful. And when the master returns in an unexpected moment, they are punished as a result. It's the assumption of more time that fosters spiritual procrastination. The assumption of more time. I think I have more time than I actually have. And just thinking that I have more time than I actually have, it fosters spiritual procrastination. I'll get to that later. I'll get to the things of God later. I'll make that change later. I'll give my life to the Lord and get it in order later. Revelation invokes urgency because we do not have tomorrow promised. We're living right now today knowing he is coming quickly, coming unexpectedly. Now, that doesn't lead us to fear. There's so many people that go, oh, man, we don't have tomorrow promise. We just have today. He's coming quickly. Oh, no, and that stirs up that anxiety. But we don't go into anxiety because we trust God with today. That's been the message of Revelation. I am Alpha and Omega. I am over everything that's going on. You don't think it's going according to plan. It's all going according to my plan. That message isn't coming through in so many sermons. Is oh, have you seen the latest thing about AI? Let's read AI into the book of Revelation and see how terrible everything's going to be. Like, maybe, maybe AI, for the next 10 years, AI is going to be read into the book of Revelation. I called it here first because I see the news headlines. Just wait for the fear mongers. It's been there the whole time, but we just didn't see it. And maybe it is there, but the message is, trust God, I'm over it. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. I've got this. What have you got? Because I've got this, you've got today. You're trusting me with tomorrow. So what act of obedience are you putting off? That's my question for you this morning. What have you been saying? Man, I'm going to get to that later on. I'm going to step into community with other believers later on. I'm going to speak to so-and-so about my faith later on. I'm going to pray for so-and-so later on. I'm going to give them my resources later on when I'm more set up in retirement. You know, well, that's when I'm going to give more of my time when I get to that stage of life. That's when I'm going to get, you know, my things in order and offer my life to the Lord or be baptized. What obedience are you putting off? Live with a sense of urgency, with trusting intentionality. That trusting intentionality is born out of this second point, that human history is on God and your story is on you. Human history is on God, and your story is on you. Take responsibility for your spiritual fate. The words of this book are trustworthy, and they're true. They're not sealed up. They've been shared. That those who heed the words may be blessed. That those who hear them and take them to heart may be blessed. So let the one who's vile continue to be vile, and let the one who does right continue to do right. Like God spoke the message, he unsealed it. It's in your hands. It's in my hands. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? You know, nobody else is going to fulfill it for me. (laughs) The book's opened at the final judgment of our lives that detail the events of our lives recorded in those books. You know, those events are ours to play out, and it's not going to be all these other things that relate to God. You know, what goes on in the world, what goes on in the headlines, all the disasters and the ups and downs. Who's, you know, there at the final judgment? The books get opened, and God's like, well, are you going to take responsibility for the whole world right now? 
You know, you really mess that up. You know, that, that nation going against this nation, and you're like, oh, I know, I, I, I could have done so much more. That's God's realm. He says, I've got, human history is mine. I can be called to account for the way thing every, everything played out. And, and you know what? I can stand on what I've done. <laughs> you know, I, I've got that part handled. What have you done? Having heard this message, did you take spiritual responsibility for the way that you were going to pray for people, the way that you were going to serve people, the way that you were going to stand for my name? There is nobody who can fulfill God's purpose for your life for you. There's nobody else that's going to come along. It is on you. It is on me. What are you going to do? How will you live? Take responsibility. Take responsibility. Your story is on you. To receive that free invitation to the water of life, to wash your robe and receive it white through the forgiveness of sin on the cross, to stand and not fall prey to the persuasion of this world. That's your story. Enlivening that and giving us vision for that is my final point. The world you long for will be the one that you live for. Yeah, I, like many, would hear the, the return of Christ when I was younger, and I braced myself because what would it mean for all my plans? If God showed up and I'm in the middle of college, <sighs> I was so close to the degree, uh, went to all those classes, what's it for? You know, I, I had plans. Right? I had visions and I had goals and I had desires and I would think, man, what about this life I have yet unlived? But when you know what's to come, like we've been working through this book, when you have this hope, when your life is caught up in what's to come, this world just gets smaller and that promise just gets bigger. So you join with the bride and you join with the spirit and you begin to pray the prayer at the book. It's the book's end here. Come, Lord Jesus. You begin to pray that wholeheartedly. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what I want. It's not escapism. It's not like, oh, I got to get out of this world. It's fulfillment. Man, that's going to be so much greater, so much bigger, so much better, so much more unimaginable than anything that could possibly happen in my own life. It's not escapism. It's fulfillment. So my question for you is, which world are you longing for? Are you dreaming of? Are you planning toward? Like literally, which one are you dreaming of? Which one are you planning toward? Which one are your resources and energies being driven for? Which world are you longing for? Because that's the one that you're going to be living for. If the goals are all here and if the vision's all here, then it's all going to be that you're living for this. But if you're longing for heaven, that's the one that you're going to live for. The one you long for will be the one that you live for. Let's long for the promise of heaven together as we approach the Lord in prayer. Would you take a posture of prayer with me this morning? I realize it's a little later. We got started a little later, but these are the questions that we can linger in because these are the most important questions we can be asking. So let's spend some time here in prayer. Let's ask the Lord to search our hearts. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit that we would have ears to hear that you'd present to us these questions. You know, what world are we longing for? The new creation, the new heaven and the new earth? Or are we banking everything on our plans, our goals for this world? The one that we long for is the one that we're going to be living for, is the one that we're going to be spending our energy on. So, Lord, give us that vision. Renew that vision of heaven. 
Renew that vision of your kingdom, that it would exceed any vision that we could possibly have of this world, that we could join with the prayer, seeking your return, Jesus, longing for your return. Heavenly Father, I pray that we'd be living with a sense of urgency in light of your impending return, the return of your Son, that we wouldn't be in this place of anxiety, that we wouldn't be in this place of faithless reactivity, we'd be in this place of trusting intentionality that every day that we've been given, we're going to live it the same. We're going to live it for your name. We're going to live it for your glory. We're going to maximize it to the fullest to obey you to walk in the only way that is truly life. Heavenly Father, that we would have the confidence, not anxiety, the confidence that because we're living, trusting you every single day, waiting for your son's return, that whether he comes today, whether he comes tomorrow or the next day or a week or a thousand years from now, whenever he'd come, he'd find us in the exact same place, living for you, trusting you, walking in your ways. Lord, if there's an act of obedience, if there's a decision, a choice, ways we're holding back today. Would you reveal that to my brothers and sisters, that there would be no act of obedience that they're waiting to perform, that we live with a sense of urgency, trusting intentionality. Lord, would we take up our spiritual responsibility to live the story that you've given us, to offer this life unto you. Your word has gone forth. Would revelation work to accelerate the work that you're doing in our life? Or take this branches congregation, this congregation that's thirsty, that's hungry for your will and way, and would you do a work in this congregation that we're just all the more ready? We're all the more thirsty. We're all the more hungry. Lord, we're ready to give you the areas of responsibility that are yours. You are sovereign. You are king. You have everything under your control in this world. Lord, you have spoken that we might heed your words, that we might hear and take to heart what you've said, that we might put it into action. So, Lord, help us to take up that spiritual responsibility, everyone this morning. There's no one else that's going to live the life that they are called to live for you, for them. It's going to be them. It's going to be me. So empower us with your Holy Spirit to do that very thing. I just want to invite you to stay here in a posture of prayer. Maybe the Lord is going to recall to mind a specific question. What world are you longing for? Which one are you living for? What act of obedience are you putting off? What are you going to do? Having heard these words, what does it mean for you to take up your responsibility? Just remain in a posture prayer for some time as we seek how the Lord would lead us.